Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 23. Chapter 23, we're going to be picking up at verse 3. We looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the descendants of Nahor, and then that finished out chapter 22. And then we looked at the first two verses of chapter 23, the, the death of Sarah. And uh, kind of going back a little bit, that lesson before the uh, descendants of Nahor, several lessons having to do with the final exam of Abraham, Abraham being called by God as a test of obedience there to sacrifice his son, his son of promise, the son Isaac, the only son he had at that time, still left living with them. And he did. He followed through. He went to the point of sacrificing his son before the angel of the Lord intervened and stopped him just short of, of uh, having to uh, having to actually do that. And so that was that was kind of the climax of Abraham's life. In fact, what we're going to see of Abraham's life from that point forward is that he's kind of getting his affairs in order. In the next chapter, in chapter 24, he's going to be arranging for a wife for his son, for Isaac. And in chapter 25, he's going to uh, distribute his assets and, and pass away. In this chapter 23, he's, he's securing a burial plot for his, his beloved wife, Sarah. So he's putting his affairs in order. And the climax of his life was what we saw there in that test, that final exam. And uh, he passed with flying colors, if you remember that study that we looked at there. So moving on then to chapter 23, verse 3, we're beginning the section here where he's going to negotiate with the people of the land to secure a burial place for his wife who has passed away. Somebody mind reading verse 3 and 4. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the... He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Tell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Here we have mentioned in verse 3 the Hittites. Some of your versions will say sons of Heth. Same people group, sons of Heth and Hittites being the same thing. We've seen the Hittites before. We saw them over in chapter 10, verse 15, when we did that whole, you know, the Noah's Ark came to rest and the people groups, the different people groups spread out from there. And we ran across the Hittites over there. And then we're running across it again. The Hittites here, this, the part that they play in this story, they're going to be the ones that sell the, this small piece of land to Abraham, the small place to bury his wife. So that's pretty much the, the most that they're going to play in this role here. Later on, we're going to see that Esau ends up marrying Hittite women, and that's not a good choice. <laughs> okay, We're going to see the Hittites come into more prominence as we read through the Bible. Interestingly, though, it turns out apparently that there were more than one group known as the Hittites. And part of that could have something to do with groups of people moving around and end up intermarrying. And so how do you identify yourself if you're you know, a child of an intermingled group? And so some would carry on the Hittite name. And so there are some suggestions that the Hittites may refer to three or as many as four different groups of people depending on the flux of people moving in and out of the land and people being conquered and um, stuff like that. So here we are. We're dealing with the Hittites now. Abraham's dealing with the Hittites. Verse 
four then, he ends up saying to them, I'm a foreigner and a sojourner. Anybody have different translation for uh, those two words in there? Foreigner and sojourner, anything else? A visitor, okay, so we have a mention of a visitor. Any other words that you run across in Indian? Stranger in a foreign land. A stranger in a foreign land, good, okay. So what the, what's trying to be conveyed here is this idea of Abraham is approaching them and he, he's starting to open a negotiation for this piece of land, okay? So the way he begins the opening process or the opening remarks interested in buying a piece of the land from them is he describes himself as this foreigner, this person who has uh, very little rights. In fact, I've got up on the board here, the word in Hebrew is this one right here. I'm not even sure I can say it, right? Ger Watosab, I guess, and it's a combination of two words. It's a hyphenated word that's made up of two different words, Tosab and Ger. He's described as a gear in other places. We've seen that before. He's been described as a sojourner, a visitor, a foreigner before. But now there's this additional term that's included in, in a combo phrase, if you will, to describe Abraham. That term over here, like I said, that's the visitor part. All right? That's the foreigner. This term over here is somebody of a socioeconomic status that's lower than the people you're talking to. All right? This term right here is somebody that's dependent. This term over here is somebody that's of lower class, okay? So he's coming to them and he's saying, not only am I a foreigner, I'm not like you guys, but I'm also subservient to you. I'm acknowledging myself or describing myself of a lower socioeconomic status, okay? In our day and age, a similar combo term might be migrant worker or illegal immigrant, okay? where it carries with it the idea that it's a visitor, but it's a visitor of a, of a lower class than the people might recognize among themselves, okay? So he's not putting, he's not making himself an equal. He's going to them and saying, you know what? I'm coming to you humbly, right? I'm coming to you describing myself as this. It's as if I'm a migrant worker. It's as if I'm an illegal immigrant, to use phrases that we're familiar with, all right? So he's stepping up to the plate. He's starting the conversation. He's using this term or this phrase to describe himself. And what is it that he's looking to buy, according to verse 4? A plot of land. To do what? Bury his wife. To bury his wife. So how much land do you need to bury somebody? Not a whole lot, right? I mean, you need a small space, a small place, all right? He's not looking for an estate, all right? He's not looking for a homestead. He's looking for a sepulcher, all right? He's just looking for a small place to bury his wife. The strange thing, too, in describing himself using these terms here and coming to buy this small piece of land is that this is within the land that God has promised to him. Okay? God has said to you and to your descendants after you, this land, it's all going to be yours. Go as far as you want to walk. Look and see all of it because it's all going to be yours. And he's here negotiating to buy just a little tiny, tiny piece. All right? <laughs> just a little tiny piece. Uh, he comes to them using this term, these, uh, this combo phrase here to describe himself, basically to say he's at their mercy, and maybe even also to suggest he's not a threat. Okay? In 23.4, does it say sell or give? When he says, I am a foreigner and stranger among you, does he say, sell me some land or give me some land? Give me property. Give me. Give me. Okay? Anybody else have something different? Let me have. Let me have. Okay, good. Any others? Sell me. Yours has sell, huh? Yeah. The word has the idea of both give and sell. The translators run into this sometimes where there isn't an exact equivalent word. 
So they have to make a choice, right? And in this case, do we choose give or do we choose sell? The translation committees that go with give, they say, you know what? If we put sell in there, we're going to make it sound like Abraham saying, hey, sell me this. Like you step onto a car lot and you, you get to call the shots. You know? And the other side would say, no, he's not asking for a handout, though. He's not asking for you know, charity. So it does carry with it the idea that he wants to obtain some land. He's willing to pay for it, but he's not, he's not going in with a demanding attitude. Mm-hmm. All right? So if you will, it's kind of like, please give me the opportunity to buy. Mm-hmm. All right? He's asking for permission to start this conversation. He intends to pay for the land. He's not asking for charity, but he recognizes, I just want the opportunity. Please give me the opportunity to buy. All right? So it's a combo idea there that's going on right there. By the way, this this phrase that we pointed out up here, this stranger, this migrant worker, if you will, the illegal alien idea that we've got, this same phrase is actually used to describe all of Israel later on, living on God's land. Later on in Leviticus, God says it's as if you guys are all of this status, and the land's mine, is what God would say. And when the uh, Israelites go down to Egypt, right, they go down to Egypt and they're enslaved. They're strangers down there, and they're of the lowest economic status there is down in Egypt. They're made slaves, all right? And while they're down there, there's still this promise ringing out that they're going to be delivered one day. And when Moses delivers them, one of the rules that God gives to Moses to give to the people is don't mistreat the immigrants. Don't mistreat the foreigners. Don't mistreat the aliens. And why? Because that's what you guys were down in Egypt. You guys were that down there, and you guys are still that on my land. So be careful how you treat the illegal. Be careful how you treat the foreigner. Be careful how you treat the alien because that's how we are. And then later on, the Bible uses that to describe all of us. We're all just visiting here. In the eyes of the world, we might have the lowest status. And I'm not talking money anymore, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm talking in the eyes of the world. You say you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. You know what? People are like, oh, sorry to hear that. You know, maybe they're thinking that. Maybe they don't say it out loud, but you know what? (laughs) And that must mean, uh, you know, you're uneducated, you don't understand things well, and uh, you got this crutch that you need in your life, you know. And in their mind, you're like knocked down a notch. You're below them, right? And God says, you know what? You're passing through this life. We're just visiting this place. So we might, in the eyes of the world, be this, what he's describing himself as. But at the same time, we are heirs. We're heirs of the creator of the heavens and the earth. We are adopted into the family of God, and this is all this land is going to be ours, okay, in a sense, all right? Just like all this land is going to be Abraham's, and we're going through a similar situation right now with us. All right, moving on from there then. How about in verse 5? How do the people respond? When Abraham describes himself using this self-abased term or this self-abased phrase, how do they respond to him in verses 5 and 6? Somebody mind reading that? Shaitans replied to Abraham, Certainly, for you are an honored prince among us. It will be a privilege to have you choose the finest of our tombs so you can bury her there. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. Jennifer's version has honored prince. Honored prince. The uh, New King James Version has mighty prince. And uh, the word actually up here, I've got it in Hebrew. It is Nessi Elohim. Recognize the word Elohim up there? Yeah. What is that? Does that conjure up any memories of what that might be? Is that just honored? Does it mean honored? Elohim is another name for God. This is a prince of God. They're actually saying, literally, you are a prince of God to us. That's actually beyond being polite. Okay? 
there's politeness going on in this negotiation process, but this is over the top. They're actually saying something that's beyond what would be required. Okay, this is beyond thank you and please. Okay, <laughs> they're acknowledging in Abraham that there's something about him that they would describe him as a prince of God. Do you remember when Abraham went down to Egypt, right? And he, he's dealing with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes away with a realization: God is with that guy. I better be careful how I treat him. Remember that? And then there's this same kind of situation with Abimelech, and Abraham is dealing with Abimelech, and Abimelech gets appeared to by God, and God says, "He is my prophet." And Abimelech's like, oh, hands off. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you know. And he's left with the very clear impression that God is with this man Abraham. And here we have the Hittites seem to recognize that God is with this man Abraham. Maybe if we're living for God, pagans would take notice. Right? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we're living for God, if somebody was able to say, oh, hands off, leave that person alone. They're a child of God. Have you seen that in your own life? Sometimes it shows up in ways that we don't often acknowledge. I remember, this is not in my notes. I did not intend to go this way. I might have to edit it out later because I'm, I'm treading on thin ice right here. I remember when I was in high school and there was this girl that was attracted to me. And she wanted more from me than just hold hands. Okay? But she came to me later, like a year later. And I was like, what happened? All of a sudden, you like me one day and you don't like me the next? And uh, she told me like a year later that God told her, don't go down that road with him. And, you know, at first I thought, yeah, right. You know, that's your excuse. You know, because I was a teenage boy, you know. But now I treasure that kind of thing later on. And like I said, this wasn't in my notes and I didn't rehearse how I was going to say this, but I'm just saying sometimes people do take notice and it's probably happening in all of our lives and we might not be as sensitive to it enough to be able to recognize that it's actually going on. So Prince of God, they acknowledge him or at least describe him as a Prince of God. And you know what? I mean, you would almost expect Abraham to be considered as royalty by these people, using a phrase like that. And I guess he has been rubbing elbows with Pharaoh and Abimelech. And you remember the five kings versus the four kings and that whole thing. And he, he held his own in that situation as well. So it looks like God is with him, and it looks like they're also taking notice. But it, I think we'll see as the story goes on, that may not prevent all of them from trying to take advantage of him. We'll see that in a little bit. But at the end of that verse, or actually throughout that verse, do you see the word us being used? And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our burial places. None of us will withhold you from his burial place that you may bury your dead. So it sounds like they are giving him a reception, that they are willing to hear him out. In that day and age to negotiate for something, you would often do it through an intermediary or a third party. And here in this situation, it looks like Abraham is trying to do that. He's trying to entreat and enlist the assistance of the people the elders of the city, if you will, to bargain on behalf of him or he's seeking permission to bargain for this piece of land, although it's held by a specific person we're going to meet pretty soon. And then you see it in verse 7, then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He's bowing down. He's showing deference to them. He's trying to come in with a humble attitude, and he's also seeking them to act as intermediaries. And then in verse 8, and he spoke with them, saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. So now he's asking for the specific person whose land he's interested in. Ephron, the son of Zohar, is the one that has the actual place that Abraham has his eye on. 
This is actually pretty uncommon for a non-Israelite to be identified as the son of anybody. And what that does is it suggests to you that this is a person of prominence in that community. So he's looking to negotiate with this person who's well-known, well-respected, well-connected, whatever the case might be. It's not just, you know, Joe Blow coming in from the field. This is, this is a landholder, and this is somebody of prominence to be identified as Ephraim, the son of Zohar, and not be an Israelite. In the Bible, that's pretty rare. And then uh, he ends up specifying in verse 9 what he's looking for. What does he say in verse 9? Somebody mind reading that verse? Everybody's like, I don't want to say that word. <laughs> it's Makpala, in case anybody's interested. I'll give you that one. Makpala. <laughs> so he will sell me the cave of Makpala, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here, if you can imagine, if you will, this guy, Ephron, son of Zohar, has a field. He has property. He has property with a field on it. We're going to find out it's got some trees on it. It's also got a cave on it. And the cave is located out at the fringe, out at the end, out at the edge of his property. Okay. So what is Abraham looking to buy? Specifically, how much is he looking to buy? The cave? He's looking to buy the cave. Uh-huh. He just wants the cave. Right? He wants the cave, and he wants the cave that's at the fringe, at the edge of the property. Uh-huh. And I can see that. You know, if I'm going to rent the house on somebody else's property, I would prefer to have access where I'm not disturbing the occupants that live there. I would prefer to have a way to get to my little spot without bothering them or having to ask permission every time I have to come and go. Hopefully I don't have to go through their house to get to the house in the back or whatever the case might be. So here we have Abraham and I can see that he'd have a desire for a piece of, you know, a little tiny piece of place for himself, for his wife, uh, to bury her off in the fringe of his property. So he wants the cave at the edge of the field. Verse 10, somebody mind reading that? Now Ephraim dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of this city, saying... Excellent, thank you. It's kind of weird to stop there in the middle of a sentence, isn't it? Uh, Just a few things to point out about this verse right here. So Ephron is actually... He's receiving Abraham's uh, request through an intermediary, and now Ephron is going to enter into the negotiation process. He's willing to negotiate with Abraham. And in the negotiation process, they're doing it in the presence of who? Or is it whom? (laughs) The elders or the sons, all who enter the gate at the gate of the city, right? So uh, in the presence of the sons of Heth or the Hittites. So they're doing this in front of witnesses. This is how you would do a legal transaction. If you wanted to buy a piece of land, you would go to the city gate. You would negotiate with the person you want to negotiate with witnesses all around. Because 10 years down the road, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, if somebody makes a claim, hey, you know, my dad never sold you that land, there were enough people that were there that day that could say, no, you know what, we were there, or my dad was there, my grandpa was there, that land belongs to him, it doesn't belong to you anymore, that kind of thing. So you had witnesses. And you see that to this day when you see things that you have to sign, right? You have to have a witness a lot of times on important papers. Somebody has to witness you being this, you know, signing what you're signing so that you, later on if you were to make some sort of claim, you've got somebody else that you can uh, pull into the process and ask, hey, was this you know, legit or not? Verse 11. Verse 11 is Ephron's response. What does Ephron say about Abraham's request to buy the little piece of land, the little mm-hmm. bit of the cave at the edge of the property? What does Ephron say in verse 11? No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. 
Excellent. Thank you, Louette. That was very kind of him, wasn't it? He says, I'm giving it to you, and I'm not giving you just the cave. I'm giving you the whole field. Hmm. Two possibilities. This is either a remarkable act of gratuity, or there's something else going on. Maybe it's uh, a bargaining ploy. All right? So Ephron is offering to give the entire field and the cave over to Abraham. Now, I'm thinking if you're Abraham, if I'm Abraham, there are times when, you know, sometimes it'd be nice to just say, wow, thanks. <laughs> but Abraham, you'll remember, do you remember when he went to rescue Lot? And he ended up bringing back, not just Lot, but rescuing everybody and brought back all the spoils, right? And there was that offer, hey, keep the spoils for yourself type of thing, right? That was given to him. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And his rationale was, otherwise, later on, you guys could say you made me rich. He wanted God to have the credit. Not some other foreign king that he doesn't have a whole lot of dealings with to be able to say, oh, I made Abraham rich. So over there, you saw that Abraham was willing to forego this big lottery winning, if you will, <laughs> all right, and, and to be able to say, I'm trusting God in this. You know, if I'm going to be rich, I want to be rich by God's hand, you know, type of thing. So he, he turned it down back then, and here we're going to find that he's going to end up turning it down as well. Somebody am mind reading verse 12. Again to the people of the land. Excellent. Thank, thank you. The only thing I'm pointing out there, this is the second time he's bowed down. This is very common. Uh, if you're showing yourself to be humble or in a transaction like this, in fact, in Genesis alone, you'll see this in chapter 18, verse 2, chapter 19, verse 1, uh, chapter 24, verse 26, chapter 24, verse 52, chapter 33, verse 3, chapter 43, verse 28, and chapter 48, verse 12, bowing down before somebody to show yourself in submission, if you will, or in deference to them, or in respect, or paying honor to them, all right? And then verse 13, continuing on with that sentence there, somebody mind reading verse 13? No, listen to me, he insisted. I will buy it from you. Let me pay the full price for the field so I can bury my dead there. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. So here he's making it clear that he wants to pay money for it. So what's going on? We've got an offer. Hey, take it for free. You can have it, not just the cave, but the whole land. Abraham's saying, no, no, I want to buy, but I want to buy just the cave. He just wanted to buy the cave, but now he's being offered the whole land. Here's a possibility of what's going on. These have been pulled up actual laws from the Hittites, and there are two different laws that seem to have some bearing on this process that we're reading about in the Bible. And it seems to be that if you were to sell a piece of your land, if Ephron was to sell the caves to Abraham, Ephron would still have to be paying the taxes, the property tax, on all the land, including the caves, because he's only sold off a portion, and it's a, the smaller portion, so Ephron would be on the hook for the taxes. But if Abraham buys the whole thing, then Abraham's on the hook for taxes. All right? So it may be a tax thing that's concerned. Boy, you're talking thousands of years ago and the same kind of situations going on today, right? So it may be tax implications that are kind of sparking some of this uh, negotiation going back and forth. By the way, when Ephron offers it for free, we don't know whether he's doing that in good faith or not. Abraham, we talked about, is not willing to take it. He wants to pay money for it so that down the road if somebody was to argue, hey, that's not your land anymore. If he buys it, there isn't that discussion, right? Right. But if he's given it, there could be a challenge later on. And he doesn't want the land that he's going to bury his beloved wife on to be challenged later on and possibly lost because somebody raises, the, well, you didn't buy it. It's not really yours. You know, it's, you know, to give it to you is just temporary. But to buy it, then, then it's more permanent. So he wants to buy it. Verses 14 and 15. Somebody am I reading those? 
And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury you there. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So here we have the offer was originally free, right? Mm-hmm. Ephron would say, No, you know what? Take it. It's free. And he knows Abraham in the negotiation process is going to say, Oh, no, no. I want to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Ephron says, well, if you want to pay for it, it's worth 400 shekels of silver. But really, what is that between you and me? We've got this relationship. I mean, how can you argue with that? You know, it's such a small amount, 400 shekels of silver. It puts Abraham in a place where he, if he was to bargain further, it would be like saying, well, your relationship, I'm willing to bargain. I'm willing to try. I'm willing to, I'm willing to try to work it out to get it for a cheaper price at the possible expense of our relationship, mm-hmm. right? So this is all part of the bargaining process. And now we find out when Ephron says that it's worth 400 shekels of silver, he never really intended to give it away, mm-hmm. all right? That was just the opening salvos of politeness that were going on in this negotiation for a piece of land. Is Abraham a good bargainer? Is he good at haggling? Do we have any other place that we've seen Abraham haggling other than this? Think of the story where the three visitors showed up. Do you remember that one? And the three visitors showed up, and they had a nice meal with Abraham. And in that meal, they disclosed some great news to him that within a year, he was going to end up having a son, and he was going to be named Isaac, and Sarah's behind the tent. She's laughing. Why did she laugh? And that whole thing. And then they get up to leave. But they get up to leave to go that way. Where is that way? It's Sodom, right? And Abraham realizes oh, something's going to happen. Something bad's about to happen in Sodom. Mm -hmm. And he realizes enough to start a bargaining process. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. A heavy-duty one, right? So the bargaining process, if you remember, they're on their way. They're about to head off to Sodom, and Abraham's walking with them. He's like, "Um, okay, I get it. You're going there to destroy the city of Sodom. Uh, What if there's 50 righteous people in that city? Come on, you know, wouldn't the Lord of the of the universe do right? Fifty righteous people, you destroy the city for what if there's fifty? Okay, I won't destroy it if there's fifty. Well, how about forty-five? Okay, I won't if it's forty. How about forty? Okay, I won't destroy it if there's forty. Thirty? All right, I won't destroy it if there's thirty. Twenty, please, you know, I'm sorry to keep pushing it. Twenty? All right, twenty. Ten? Uh, knock it off. Ten is my luck. You know, he gets them from fifty down to ten. He's pretty good at bargaining, or he has been in the past. What does he do here? What do you see there in the next verse, verse 16? He paid him the money. He paid him the money. Mm-hmm. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. He pays the money. He doesn't even bargain. Mm-hmm. What are you doing, Abraham? He's not even trying to get a deal. Mm-hmm. He's done. <laughs> he's done. It seems to have mellowed as he's aged, huh? It seems like this is a changed man. This is not the Abraham we saw over in chapter 18. This is a different Abraham. 400 shekels of silver. Let's talk about how much 400 shekels of silver is, since that's what he ends up paying for this piece of land. Is that a lot? Is that not much? Well, consider this. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 9, Jeremiah ends up buying his cousin's field. And he pays a whopping total of 17 shekels of silver for that field. 17. Here we're talking 400. Now, I get it. Some people will say, okay, well, in the time of Jeremiah, there was a siege. You know, things were not normal. All right. Well, there's another, another account that we could look at, which is David. David, you remember the plague, and the plague is coming upon the land, and David's like, you know what, I need to sacrifice to the Lord, I need this piece of land, and, and the guy that owns the land is like, I'll give it to you, and David says, no, 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 I am not going to 
I'm not going to take something for free and offer to God something that didn't cost me anything. And so he's like willing to pay whatever it takes. And he paid for that temple mount, later became the temple mount. He paid a whopping 50 shekels of silver. The king, with unlimited resources of the king, and he buys it for full price, it seems, for 50 shekels of silver. So 400, sounds like he got ripped off. I'm just thinking. He was just looking for what? A whole field? Was he looking for a whole field? Was he looking for the trees on the field? Was He He was just looking for a, a piece of ground, and not even that, a hole in the ground to bury his wife. A little tiny, tiny piece. The smallest piece of land you could possibly have a use for. He's not looking to build a house. He's not looking to plant a vineyard. He's not looking to set up an estate. He's looking just to bury a person, just to take the amount of space it takes for one person just to be buried. That's all he's looking for. And he pays 400 shekels of silver. I think he got taken advantage of by Ephron. And you know what? Sometimes in this life, we are going to be badly taken advantage of. And he pays it. He, he doesn't even argue. He just takes it. He takes that abuse and pays it. I think that's a challenge to me. Maybe it's not to you, but it's a challenge to me. Because there are times I want to argue. And there's times I want a good deal. You know, sometimes my motive is, hey, I just want to be able to say I got a good deal. And there's sometimes I want to say... These are my rights, and I am not going to be taken. And in this situation, he's willing to just say, I pay it out of my resources. You know what? Everything he has is from God, right? Mm -hmm. So when he's buying the land, he's buying the land with resources that were given to him by God. So in a sense, he's taking what God has given him, and God, if this is what's going to cost, I'm willing to pay it because it's all yours anyway. And isn't that the same with all of us? Everything we have is from God. Right? We weren't born into this world with a money bag tied onto our waist. <laughs> right? He, he's paying it out of his resources that God has seen to it that he's been blessed with. All right? So he's buying that land, and it's an expensive purchase, but uh, he doesn't seem to be complaining at all. What's interesting, too, is when he buys this piece of land, this gravesite is the first piece of land that Abraham can call a possession. All of it's promised to him. It's all going to be long to his descendants. And this is the first piece, the first sliver, the first little plot that's actually a possession of Abraham's. He's been a sojourner, a wanderer, a vagabond the whole time. Do we know how long that was since as far as a period of time? Oh, between the time that it was promised and the time that it would start to be fulfilled here? 62 years? Good question. Mm -hmm. It's a long time is right. It's a long time. So he ends up paying for the land. And then what do we see in verse 17? So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. Verses 17 and 18 doesn't that almost sound like a contract? Mm -hmm. It sounds like a bill of sale right there. It sounds like the ratification of the transaction. And that very well could be what it is. So you have in those words the description, the terms of the agreement, and then you have the witnesses of, of the agreement. The terms of the agreement in verse 17, the witnesses of the agreement in verse 18. 
And then verse 19, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. You know what's interesting is in verse 19, you see Mamre is mentioned, right? You also see Mamre was mentioned in verse 17, twice. Twice we have the mention of Mamre. Where is the first mention of Mamre? Go to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13 is going to have the first time that Mamre was mentioned. Genesis 13, 18. Genesis 13, 18 says this, Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. He's been there before. He's built an altar there before the Lord there. What else was associated with that? If you look just three verses before, you read the three verses before that. How about the four verses before that? Starting in verse 14, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Mamre is the epicenter of God's promise of the land to Abraham and his descendants. Now, we've seen promises of land before. You saw it in verses uh, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. You saw it in verse 7. But here especially, it's reiterated, it's expanded, and it's made very clear. Go take a walk. Go take a look. It's all around you. And where is he when God says it's all around you? He was in Mamre. He was here. He's already passed through this area. He's already built an altar to the Lord here. Maybe why he had those sites on that specific place. That's right. He's probably remembered. That was a really nice place. If I ever die, I want to be buried there. And you know what's interesting is Sarah, she's buried there. And Abraham, when he dies, he's buried there too. And in fact, later on, their son Isaac. Isaac ends up marrying Rebecca. Isaac, when he dies, is buried there. And Rebecca's buried there. Isaac and Rebecca have a son, Jacob. Jacob, known as Israel, ends up his first wife as Leah. Jacob and Leah were also buried there. They all ended up being buried there. You suppose this was a hard time for Abraham, going back to just Abraham's situation, to bury Sarah? This is the wife of his youth. This is the wife of his old age. This is the mom of the son of promise. This is his beloved. And she's now passed away. And yeah, it's probably a hard time to be burying her. But look at verse 20. Verse 20, this is the end of the chapter. This is the end of the chapter that has to do with the burial of Sarah. And it says this, So the field and the cave that were in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Her name's not even mentioned. In his situation, in that time, he's probably consumed with the thought of the passing of his beloved Sarah. And he's probably overwhelmed with burying his beloved wife. But 20, by the author, makes it clear that this is not about the burial of Sarah, first and foremost. This chapter is about God's promise sprouting. You ever heard that saying, this is a hard row to hoe? It's an old farming phrase, right? And you have to hoe the weeds out, right? You hoe the weeds out, and then you want the land to be good for the crop, right? This is a hard row to hoe for Abraham in burying his wife, Sarah. But what's happening? The crop is God fulfilling his promise, and this is the first sprout of that promise being fulfilled. This is the first piece of land. It's all going to be his. Three main points I want to draw to your attention to in this one, in this study. Point number one, in our dealings with the world, we might hold the lowest position. We might be just visitors here, um, but eventually we're going to own the whole place. We're sons of the king. We're heirs to the king of the universe. And right now, we might have the status of a migrant worker and a legal alien, 
but we know that there's a promise to be fulfilled in us, and that is in a spiritual setting. God's offer does everything, the entire state of the person who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and everything in between. Number two, sometimes in our darkest hour, this was Abraham's darkest hour, bearing his wife Sarah. Sometimes in our darkest hour, God is sprouting something brand new in us, and we can't see it because we're so consumed with how dark it is. But when the daylight shines, we'll eventually see that that was the beginning of something God was starting, the fulfillment of promises that he had made before that. And then finally, sometimes it's costly to follow God. Sometimes we'll be taken advantage of. But he always supplies us what we need, and we need to think that these are not our resources, they're his. It's all from God anyway. If God's calling you to do something and has supplied you the means to do it, don't think of it as your own. That's all given to you by God. Maybe God's brought this moment to you where you have the resources to be able to go down the path that he wants you to go down. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that your word is rich. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, help us to see in these situations that sometimes things are grievous. Sometimes things are hard. Sometimes things are very dark. We thank you, Lord, that even in those darkest hours, there's a promise that's sprouting up. There's something new that you want to do. There's something that maybe we're overlooking because we're consumed with grief. And yet it's the beginning of something wonderful that maybe you're doing in our lives. We pray that you would help us to be mindful that our lives are in your hands and all the resources that we have in our bank account are all yours anyway. And help us to live, Lord, like you would want us to live, following you. What would you have us to do despite the costs? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you guys have a wonderful week.